0: You know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh?
2: A redwood forest would be cool. Ski
0: slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California?
2: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
1: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories what inspires their creations? What decisions change their careers? What relationships influenced their work? At this point, it would be almost impossible not to have heard of Making a Murderer, the 10-part Netflix series that launched last month. Stephen Avery's story is a cultural phenomenon, with viewers launching petitions, calling for a retrial, and even a presidential pardon. It's a story with many detours and a wide range of characters. Here's what we know. Stephen Avery worked at his family's auto salvage yard in Manitowoc County, Wisconsin. He had a few prior convictions before his arrest for sexual assault in 1985. He served 18 years for that crime until DNA evidence proved his innocence and he was exonerated. Just two years after his release, Avery and his nephew, Brendan Dassey, were arrested and subsequently convicted for the murder of a female photographer. The story is still unfolding. The series has provoked many of the lead characters to speak out. Ken Kratz, the lead prosecuting attorney, recently accused the filmmakers of making a murderer, of leaving out important information. My guests today are those filmmakers, Laura Ricciardi and Moira Dimas. They've spent the past 10 years documenting Stephen Avery's story, which they first read about in the New York Times. This is Laura Ricciardi.
2: We actually met in graduate film school at Columbia University. You know, we had no money.
1: And that's Moira Dimas.
3: I mean, we had negative money. This was, we were borrowing money.
1: So the beginning for you was this. when? What, what year? You saw um, Avery on the Times was the beginning?
3: The, the day before Thanksgiving in 2005, he had been arrested and charged in the Teresa Halbach murder. You know, this the headline read, freed by DNA, now charged in new crime. It just seemed like, you know, he was this incredible window through which to look at our system. You know, if we followed this man's story, we would go from one extreme of the system to the other. So as I was saying, you know, we had no money, but what we what we could put into it was time, which is actually an incredibly valuable <laughs> asset. And after doing a preliminary week of shooting in December, realized this was something we wanted to pursue. And we sublet our apartment in New York. We got an apartment in Manitowoc. And we lived there, you know, more on than off for close to two years. So I think a lot of the access we had was, you know, because we were there, because we weren't going anywhere.
1: What was it like to live there, and how did the principals on either side treat you?
2: Well, I would say there was definitely a range of responses. Um, there were some people who were wary of us. We were in an, an unknown um, two individuals from New York City who, you know, had descended upon uh, Manitowoc County, Wisconsin, and we were mysterious in a way. But we were collaborating with the local media. We were documenting the Hallbuck case as it was unfolding. So we were also very public trying to be very collaborative. So we did whatever we could to to seem what we actually were, which was non-threatening. You know, we were there simply to document events as they were unfolding. You know, we were not there to judge. We were there to listen and to witness.
0: Law enforcement despised Stephen Avery. Stephen Avery was a shiny example of their inadequacies, their misconduct. We
2: reached out to... Um, The two attorneys who represented Stephen Avery in his federal civil rights lawsuit against Manitowoc County and and two of its former law enforcement officers, and these were two individuals who were sort of at the opposite extreme of those who were wary. These individuals, Steve Glynn and Walt Kelly, I think in a sense were happy that we reached out to them because they were concerned that the history would otherwise be lost uh, because, of course, when we first met with them, Stevens' civil lawsuit had already settled. And so to the extent they wanted— The 400000 That's right.
1: Which he then had to give, what, one sixty to attorneys and the other 40 percent. And then if I watch—because I did watch this very correctly and try to pay <laughs> attention. I think the that's right. And then the two forty was left to bankroll the other— defense case, correct? That's That's right. right. I
3: mean, the money never touched Stephen's hand. Just
1: to clarify for listeners, the money that he won in a civil suit for being falsely imprisoned for 18 years was used, his net proceeds were used, to fund his defense for the murder trial.
2: That's correct. You know, Steve Glynn expressed to us the actual heartbreak he felt when Stephen was arrested in this new crime. One of the reasons for that was... He knew what Stephen himself and the Avery family had endured throughout Stephen's wrongful imprisonment for 18 years. Steve Glynn had actually represented Stephen Avery um, in Stephen's post-conviction efforts in the mid-'90s and fully believed in Stephen's innocence. So, you know, he was a client he had a long history with, someone he really cared about, who now found himself back in the system facing mandatory life. And so Steve Glynn... You know, expressed to us that Stephen not only had a $36 million lawsuit pending, but also expressed to us why Stephen brought that lawsuit to begin with. He wasn't digging for gold, he was trying to prevent what happened to him and what happened to Penny Burnson, the victim in the first case, from happening to anyone else.
1: For those who don't know the story that well, he is falsely imprisoned for 18 years from 1985 to 2003, and he gets out. He's exonerated by DNA evidence. When he's in prison for 10 years, uh, the neighboring sheriff's department or county police, you can articulate this, contact the Matinawak people and say, we think you got the wrong guy. We think we know who the guy is. And the people in Matinawak say, we're fine. Correct?
3: Yeah, it's 10 years into Stephen's sentence, and what happens is that an officer from Brown County calls the Manitowoc Sheriff's Department and says, we have somebody in custody who says that he committed an, a sexual assault in Manitowoc County and someone else is serving time. So they actually confessed. Had, had somebody confessing to it.
1: Was it the guy that was eventually found guilty of the crime?
3: It's hard to track down exactly who made that call.
1: Did they find someone that was guilty of her, of her rape? Did they convict someone else?
3: They did, yes. It, um, and it, it is likely that person that was confessing um, because the timing was that works was never out. verified. It was never verified. Okay. But in 1995, Gregory Allen, that the, the right. DNA um, that had been collected in the rape kit in 1985 was retested, and it matched this person, Gregory Allen, who was in the system because he had been convicted of a subsequent rape in 1995. Mm-hmm. So the timing of of that phone call does point to Gregory Allen making that confession.
1: So eventually, Avery is released in two thousand three. Correct.
3: That's right.
1: And when he gets out, he starts suing people. And the the lawsuit that results in the four hundred thousand dollar judgment that was Avery suing who under what banner? That was a civil rights lawsuit.
3: It was a federal civil rights lawsuit. But if I can, I would like to back up sure. because. He he did not immediately start suing people. There was actually a call to action, I think, a week after his exoneration for the attorney general to look into what had gone wrong. And there was a DCI investigators put on that case and many reports written about what they were finding. But ultimately, after those reports were submitted to lawyers at the attorney general's office, the official report that was written was that there was no wrongdoing and that there was no ethical or criminal violations in the case. So it was at that point, when the system itself did not hold itself accountable, that Stephen took the steps to file a lawsuit.
1: So he files that lawsuit. That lawsuit is adjudicated over what period of time? He gets the settlement when?
2: Stephen filed the lawsuit in October of 2004 and settled it, I believe, in February of 2006. And, And who settled uh, all of the defendants.
1: Which were, in that case, were?
2: Manitowoc County, its former sheriff, Tom Kosurik, and its former prosecutor, Dennis Vogel. Both Kasurik and Vogel were being sued in their official capacity and in their individual capacity. Did they pay
1: anything individually? With I sett- The settlement was paid by who? Which entity paid the 400000
2: The terms of the settlement were confidential. confidential. I I mean, it was reported in the news the amount that Stephen ultimately settled for, but we were not able to verify that.
1: Then he has another lawsuit. The $36 million lawsuit is by him individually against who? Who does he sue then?
3: Well, to clarify, there's only one lawsuit. So when he sues in October of um, 2004... That is for $36 million against Mantua County, the former sheriff and the former district attorney. And it's important to recognize the timing of the settlement because Stephen does not settle the lawsuit until he has been charged with the murder of Teresa Halbach, until he is desperate for funds. And, you know, he says himself, like, what good is money going to do me, you know, if I can't prove my innocence? You know, I have to give up. What was his goal of holding somebody accountable for what had happened to him to try to defend himself?
1: So it was it was the single lawsuit. That's right. There was no settlement of this lawsuit, and some other lawsuit was hanging over the heads of Colburn and Link and those people, correct? It was one lawsuit. It was
3: one lawsuit. Um and you mentioned Colburn and Link. They had they had been deposed in the lawsuit and the content of those depositions was about this phone call in 1995 about Gregory Allen confessing or somebody, purportedly Gregory Allen, confessing to this assault for which Stephen was serving time and what was done with that phone call and the fact that it was buried and that it was, there were no reports written. And, and there were not, no
1: repercussions for them, for either of them.
3: There were not. At the time, there was talk among the civil attorneys that perhaps those two individuals should be added as defendants in the lawsuit but that did not have an opportunity to happen.
1: Because he had to crash the whole thing to get the money to pay for the murder That's defense. That's right. I think um, an
2: interesting detail that came out during Stevens' trial, when Dean Strang was cross-examining then sergeant, patrol sergeant Andrew Colburn, he asked him, at the time you were deposed in the lawsuit, did you have any concern that you yourself might be added as a defendant in the lawsuit? And Colburn answered affirmatively. He said, yes. It had crossed my mind.
1: At the center of this is Avery, who I'm assuming you spent countless hours with him or around him, correct?
3: Um, Hours on the phone, mostly. Um, We were able to visit him in the county jail. How many times? I I would guess maybe eight, maybe ten. So a few. Yeah.
1: How did he strike you?
2: Well, he's about two inches shorter than I am, and I'm— what am I? Five foot five. So I was a little surprised by his stature, and um, but he had a big smile. He was very affable. Uh, he was very open. He was very gracious, and um, you know, it just it, it it appeared to us that this was somebody with a very simple value system, but a value system nonetheless. The thing about
1: this that that I think about in terms of the two of you as filmmakers is. You spend countless hours immersed in this, and did you develop an ability to tell who's telling the truth and who's lying? Did you become a bit more expert at that from doing this?
3: I mean, I think we certainly developed the ability to identify, you know, should I be inclined to trust this person and what they're saying? And I think that was about, you know, being there and and hearing from so many people and going into the documents, you know, because we one of the things the series is about and one of the things we were fascinated with was there was what was going on in public and then there was what was going on behind the scenes. Give us and, a
1: distinction and, that struck you.
3: Well, you know, once Brendan got sucked into this case and so, you know, Stephen's sister is the mother of his nephew and it becomes this family drama and in the public there's a lot of talk of Barb Yonda is... You know, trying to protect Stephen Avery and the family is forcing Brendan to recant. You know, then you go to their living room and they're fighting over this. And she actually doesn't necessarily even believe in Stephen or her son at all time. she's not quite sure. She
1: she, she thinks Avery might have killed the woman.
3: Yeah. She doesn't know. There are moments like that. She's She's very torn. She's grappling with it herself. And... You know, that's just all simplified and missed on the public level. And
1: and again, to interject this for people who haven't seen the piece, the man who is released from prison after 18 years on the rape charge is then accused of a murder. And then it goes to another level again when the guy's nephew is roped into the whole thing to confess against him because they don't have any really reliable physical evidence, so they need an eyewitness. What else happens to her? in her head. Extremely, extremely important You tell us this. For us to believe you.
0: Come on, Brendan. What else?
1: I, I don't even know the words to describe it.
3: That's all I can remember.
4: All right, I'm just gonna come out and ask you, who shot her in the head?
3: He did. Why didn't you tell us that? So I can think of it. Now you
1: remember it? When you were around that, that family, because they do come across, there's a little whiff of some kind of uh, cliched Appalachia to these people. Describe them. These people were not Bible-thumping, God-fearing no. people.
3: No, although it is interesting... Um You know, in episode um, eight, I guess it is, Dolores, Stephen's mother says, you know, I know God is on my side. You know, they might not be Bible thumping and, you know, performing that they're going to church. But But they have faith. But they have faith. They have a belief system. And I think in terms of how the community thinks about them or responds to them, I think the dividing line is really between people that know them and the people that don't know them. They have supporters, people that have interacted with them, customers— and how they're treated so as So not everybody
1: there, oh, the, the, the law enforcement community, particularly the one that Colburn and Lank work with, uh, that law, that's the county, correct? The county sheriff's department. Now, they have their opinion of the, the Avery family, but the Averys had their supporters, and they were members of a community, correct? Not everybody hated them. I thought they were trash.
2: That's right. I mean, one of the things we came to learn is that, um, you know, in a way, the Averys were considered the other in that particular community, they were not dairy farmers. Um, although many of them worked in factories, it's also there's there's industry in Manitowoc County as well. But um, you know, their profession, their livelihood was different, and they were essentially members of an underclass. So they were identified as the other. And as you mentioned earlier, Alec, um, you know, they weren't church-going people. So in a way, they you know they didn't fit into the community in that sense. But what was interesting to us was that, um, you know, the Averys were content. They they kept to themselves and they were happy with that. You know, they did tend to get into some trouble when they did venture out into the community. I mean, you mentioned that Stephen had some priors, and he certainly did. So um, that was interesting to us, though, to to try to get a sense of how self aware they were, or or how they considered themselves in the community, and and did they were they conscious of being thought of as the other. And it it seemed to us that they weren't really conscious of that.
1: Um, You know, you were accused of soft-selling some of those priors. And do you agree? Was there—if you'd had it to do over again, would you have been more explicit about what he did? Explain about that.
2: No, I mean, we, you know— our process was about using primary source materials to the extent they were available to us. We would review them, and we wanted support for whatever was included in the documentary. We fact-checked. We had multiple sources for things.
3: Right. I mean, it's been reported in the national news in the last few days. The documentary says this, but the truth is, is this.
1: Uh, I'm assuming that when this thing rolled out, I'm sure Netflix has a legal department like no other. Netflix is rich, yeah. yeah Netflix <laughs> is rich, and they've got a lot of money to uh, fact check and so forth. I'm sure they put you through the ringer about that for a period of time. Did you have copious sessions with them about that?
3: Yeah, I mean, certainly all of the legal checking, all of the clearing of title, and checking all of our releases. Everything was a thorough process. But when
1: you're done with that process and the program is rolled out on Netflix, certainly you anticipated you'd have some blowback from the principals involved. Correct? Did you prepare yourself for that?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's no surprise to us what Kratz is coming out and saying. I mean, I can't even say I'm disappointed. I mean, it, it's so predictable. What's disappointing is that, you know, he, the reporters on the national news are not asking him, "What are what is your source?" They're not looking at the record and challenging him on his statements. They're sort of doing exactly what we document happened during the Holbach case. He makes a statement, the media puts it out there as truth, and, you know, off we go.
1: The repercussions from the series seem to change daily. Last week, Avery's former fiance Jody Stakowski, who appears sympathetic to him in Making a Murderer, gave an interview stating that she believed he murdered Halbach. She also said she asked not to appear in the series. Moira and Laura have responded by saying quote, we and our legal team are very comfortable that we had the appropriate consent from all of the interview subjects including Jody unquote explore the Here's the Thing archives where I talk with Gay Talese the father of long form journalism. I never wrote
0: about a person and I've written about hundreds and hundreds of people that I couldn't go to see again I never had someone that wouldn't see me. In fact my attitude was the story's never over. I could write about someone that's a performing athlete or performing actor, and then 10 years later go back and see them again. I
1: wrote about Peter O'Toole, my favorite person, in 1963, not long after he
0: did Lawrence of Arabia. I kept in touch with him for the next 40 years. I believe that people, as long as they're alive, have more stories to tell. Just because you publish published an article in the New York Times or the New Yorker magazine doesn't mean that the story's over. Take a listen
1: at here's the thing.org.
5: Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand.
0: LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
1: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, the 10-part Netflix series Making a Murderer has made more than a few people household names, including Avery's defense attorneys Dean Strang and Jerry Buting, and Teresa Halbach's brother, Mike. I want to talk about a person who, to me, is one of the more disturbing figures in the show, and that is Halbach's brother.
0: Uh, Hopefully, you know, move on, hopefully with Teresa still in our life. And this guy was as velvety and as seamless and
1: did not seem to be mourning his sister at all. What was your opinion of the brother?
2: Well, there's an interesting detail. Um, When Dean and Jerry first came to represent Stephen Avery, one of their early motions they brought, they were going to seek a a gag order essentially against the state. Because um, you might recall back in November when law enforcement took over the Avery property for eight days of searches, there were actually daily press conferences, televised press conferences that were also, you know, on radio and in print. And, um, you know, as soon as these private attorneys came to represent Stephen, they wanted to put a stop to that. And what happened was the two sides ultimately entered into a stipulation and said, okay, neither side will talk to the press. We won't do any more pre publicity. But I think what's interesting to note is that Mike Hallbach, who is essentially the spokesperson for the Hallbuck family, um, it seems ultimately like sort of was past the torch by Ken Kratz because my callback continued to speak in the press. Are you concerned
0: that with each witness, this window of reasonable doubt keeps getting wider and wider? No, I'm not concerned at all. Um, I think it's a hand that's kind of forced upon the prosecution team. That's, you know, kind of my belief, um, so... Not concerned at all.
2: He was essentially channeling the state's narrative. I mean, he was saying explicitly what matters to our family is that Stephen Avery is convicted of this crime.
1: Did, did you interview them at all? Did any of the Hall agree to be interviewed by you?
3: Um, they did not. I mean, like most of our subjects, um, we wrote a letter to them, introducing ourselves, introducing the project and what our goals were. Um, and that resulted in us eventually having coffee with Mike what, what my recollection of what Mike told us was, you know, because we had described, you know, we want to look at the American criminal justice system. We think, you know, there's a lot to be learned from this case and, you know, the relationship of the past case and, you know, Stephen's wrongful conviction to what's happening now. And he told us, you know, I don't think there's any problems with the justice system and there's nothing to be learned from Stephen Avery. Here was a man who believed that Stephen Avery had murdered his sister and it's, You know, Stephen Avery had served 18 years in prison as an innocent man, and so so potentially his narrative was that, you know, because he was in prison for 18 years, he was now a murderer. So how could he at the same time say there's nothing wrong with the American criminal justice system?
2: Uh, Finding her cell phone records, uh, how does something like that occur? Um, Well, there were a couple of us that tried figuring it out, but basically figured out her password and made up a username that worked and got into her her, uh, her phone records, and, I mean, they printed right off.
1: The deleted voicemails that the
2: boyfriend uh, talked search. about or
1: he was uh, he uh, or queried about when he was on the stand. Explain to the audience sure. what, ha- what happened. The woman, Halbach, is murdered. This is the murder that Avery is then accused of. She comes to photograph cars. She comes to the salvage yard. She comes out from uh, what, what town was she based in?
2: Her workplace right. was in Green Bay, but she lived in um, Calumet County. So she Hilbert. comes there
1: and patrols that area and photographs cars to put on their uh, website and in their publication, uh, an auto trader. Now, explain how there were messages of Hall Bucks that were deleted by who? Who admitted to that?
2: No one ultimately admitted to deleting her messages. Her brother Mike admitted to Listening to her, her voicemail and messages. Guessing her
1: password. Right?
2: I believe both Mike and Teresa's ex-boyfriend Ryan Hillegas, um claim to have yes to to have guessed Teresa's password.
1: And go in and listen to her voicemail. That's right. And some of her voicemails are deleted.
3: That's right. I mean one of the one of the reasons this woman was reported missing was because people were calling her voicemail and getting the message that her mailbox was full. This was unusual to people. She was very prompt and polite and got back to people. So that was a concern That trip. concerned them. That, that was a concern. That was one of the things that made people call each other and have you seen her, have you seen her? So we know that the mailbox was full as of a certain date, but then they have records a few days later and there's not enough messages there to trigger and
1: Hills and, and has guessed the passport and Hilllis has a scratch on his face and hillligas is her ex-boyfriend they had been uh they'd been parting correct or they were part they were broken up they were broken they up were broken up yep. how long were they broken up Does anybody recall that
2: I believe Ryan testified that they last dated when they were still in college I believe do you remember
3: where yeah i th- I, I don't know how many years the gap was. So it was, was a long time. It, it was a long time, but they were in each other's lives. Right. Teresa lived with a friend, a male friend, in a house. That friend was one of Ryan's best friends. I mean, they were in each other's lives.
1: The other part, because I want to get to your personal stories, of, so I'll just pick one more topic of this to talk about, which is this stuff about the, the burning of the body. Parts being moved from a burn pit— Explain to the audience what the prosecutors claim happened to Halbach's body in their mind and what you think the potential conflicts are in the actual evidence that you know of.
2: Well, the state presented evidence and argued to the jury that Teresa Halbach, after she was shot in the head and, and murdered in that way, that her body was mutilated and, and burned. Investigators recovered Human remains from a burn pit outside of Stephen Avery's uh, bedroom window, essentially, and right behind his trailer. That's right. They also recovered human remains from a burn barrel, which was outside of Stephen's sister's residence next door to Stephen's property. But interestingly, the defense elicited testimony from the state's own forensic anthropologist, who testified the woman. That's right, Dr. Leslie Eisenberg. That there were what seemed to be human cremains also um, found in a quarry a quarter of a mile away from these other two locations where the cremains were found that matched. That essentially matched. I mean, they were burned to the, burned and calcined to the same degree as these other bones. And oh, well, so, then you can't do a DNA test on that material.
3: Um, well, but, just to be clear, the bones found in um, in Stephen's burn pit and the bones found in the burn barrel behind Barb's house, those were matched to Teresa Hallbuck. It's it's the bones that were in the quarry pile that were too small and and too fragmented to be able to identify.
1: You think he's guilty, Avery?
3: I mean, you know, this following this case for a decade was you know such an incredible experience, which we tried to offer to our viewers as well. But, you know, we went in with questions. You know, that's what got us to move from New York to Manitowoc. We thought naively, oh, we'll get answers to these questions. And it's just so clear that it just leads to more questions. And, um, you know, there's no way I can claim to have any real certainty about his guilt. If you're on a jury, you'd vote... I think if I was on that jury, I would vote um, that they hadn't proved their case.
1: You vote not guilty based on the case presented. You're not saying he's innocent, but you're saying that the case was just filled with inconsistencies.
3: That's right, and that's such an important distinction to make because that's what juries are deciding. Right. It's guilty or or not guilty. There's no verdict of innocent in this country.
1: That's a good point, by the way. I'm going to quote you. I'm going to borrow that from you ad nauseum. There is no verdict of innocent in this country. That's great. Um, The juror who was dismissed because of the family crisis or whatever it was that happened with his daughter, she was in a car accident. That's right. That gentleman came out and mentioned that in the first balloting of the the first uh, preliminary balloting of the jury, it was seven voted for innocent, correct, out of 12 people.
3: That's correct. Okay. Yeah, when they walk in and, you know, just sort of take a straw poll,
2: that was that was the poll. The juror you mentioned, Richard Mahler, who was excused and who appears in the series, told us about um, at one point the jurors who actually were deliberating and taking their oath seriously were, were looking through photographs of the bookcase from Stephen's bedroom. And this is a bookcase where a key piece of evidence, actually a key, the car ignition key from Teresa Hallbuck's vehicle was supposedly found by Officer uh, Lieutenant James Lank. And what this juror said to us was that the jury was discussing how before the key was found, there was change, loose change on top of the bookcase. And they were looking at photographs um, after the key was found. And that change was in the same position. And Why that was significant to these jurors was that there was testimony that the key was not initially discovered because it was hidden inside this bookcase and had only fallen out after Sergeant Colburn claims to have really shaken the bookcase and, you know, done all this stuff. And the change remains intact. I mean, that was the jurors' analysis.
1: And was there a period where you sat there and said, you know, we're done, we're going to leave? And then, it, you know, in the, Pacino has that line in The Godfather Part Three: I try to get out, but they keep pulling me back in. Is that your condition as well?
3: Well, um, you know, we did, we followed these cases through convictions and through sentencing. So that was the summer of 2007. And, and we just practically speaking, had to leave, and we had to go back to day jobs and try to dig ourselves out a little bit from debt. What and,
1: was your day job then?
3: Um, well, my job before going to film school, I I'm in local fifty two as an electrician. I'd worked on movie sets, film sets. Have you and I ever worked together? I think we may have. <laughs> I did some days on Thirty Rock, so yeah, oh my God. it's crazy, that right? Show is it's all awesome. coming together.
1: It's all coming together.
3: Um, so you, you did I electrical. Had, I did electrical, but I'd also worked as a documentary editor. Um, and then from there, finally, it was like, I'm just going to go to film school and, and do that. So um, I sort of fell back on being an electrician. It was a much easier career to go in for a few days or a few months and go out of. So it allowed me the flexibility to keep doing this project. You know, part of it was just the time it took. Really, for the marketplace to evolve and for us to be able to do enough in that sort of part-time way to get the project far enough along that we could show a place like Netflix what this was and what we could do. And, you know, at that point, then we wanted to— Did
1: they bite right away, Netflix? Yes. Right away. And what about you— Our very
2: first meeting, to be specific.
1: And and what what about you? What were you doing to pay the bills?
2: I was working as a contract attorney doing electronic discovery for mainly for complex business litigation matters. So I was drowning in documents every day, essentially. And then going home and law. drowning in documents relating to all the matters in this story. <laughs> as well as footage and phone calls and everything else. Yeah. I mean there were times where I would take Brendan Dassey's phone calls, Moira would load up um, you know, my computer for me to take to work or my iPad with Brendan Dassey's phone calls and I would be listening to them at work um, and taking notes, which, you know, helped us sift through hundreds of hours of these calls with his mother and other people in his life.
4: So. It's
1: interesting how I, I I didn't assume that you put your legal career on hold and you didn't, you were practicing while you did this to, you know, have, a, have an income, but whatever your aspirations were when you thought about going to law school and you were in law school. Isn't it funny how you didn't necessarily practice law these last 10 years, but you ended up doing more for this case than any lawyer might have done in the work you've done? Do you do you have that feeling?
2: I think that's an excellent point, actually. Um, Moira Moira pointed out to me recently that, you know, when this finally airs, the subjects in our series will get to see— you know, a much broader picture. I mean, they they offered to us their piece of the puzzle, essentially. And that was really exciting to me because I hadn't really thought of it in that way before. So we were looking forward to sharing the series with, you know, the world, essentially. But then also we wanted to see how our subjects would respond to it. And yes, I mean, I, I continued practicing law while working on this project, but I had seriously scaled back prior to... Embarking on this journey, I was working as an associate at a midsize firm in Chicago and working practically every day of the week. I went back to law school. I was trying to get an advanced legal degree in LLM and taxation. And I was, um, you know, and, and I said, okay, well— I'm essentially going to demote myself. I'm going to work as an hourly attorney, um, take a tremendous pay cut, but what I will get in exchange is flexibility in terms of my schedule. I'll have more control over my schedule. I won't have to be concerned about FaceTime or pleasing partners necessarily, and that will afford me what I need to do to continue moving this project forward with Moira.
3: But I think your point, Alec, is great because, you know, I know Laura very well, and, you know, what I know is that you know, she left her career in law to go to film school. This this is, you know, four or five years before embarking on this project. And she did that because, you know, she thought she could make more of a difference through film than through practicing as a lawyer. And so your point is is perfect.
1: Well, you hope so. I probably wouldn't do it this way, but certainly because you are a couple, because you're partners in, in your private life. You tell me, Moira, what are her strengths? What does she bring to the filmmaking process that you think is important?
3: I mean, I think Laura is one of the most moral and ethical people I've ever met, and she's also one of the most detail-oriented people I've ever met.
1: An LLM in taxation, I hope so.
3: (laughs) So, you know, those three things right there, what that brought to this project, the ability to, you know, go through the documents— you know, draw boundaries with our subjects, you know, fact check anything we were going to put into the series, you know, it's invaluable. Your turn.
2: <laughs> Where to begin? Um, I just felt very fortunate to be, you know, partnered in life and in work with Moira because she is the most trustworthy individual I know, and... Um, you know, she she committed herself to this project. I mean, Moira, as she said, she you know, she'd been working as an electrician in the industry, worked as a as a documentary editor, but really wanted, um, I think to work in fiction filmmaking and and, and finally had worked up the courage to say, I, I, I wanna direct. And I've tried these other things, possible avenues to directing, and I'm I'm going to commit myself to entering into this film program and become a director. And, um, you know, I asked her if she would partner with me on this project, and, and she jumped in, and she gave everything she had to it and never once made me feel like she regretted it or that, you know, there was something better she could have been doing. And And I respect her tremendously for that, and I appreciate that. And beyond that, just in terms of her creativity and um, the talent she has, I mean, she, I I am just in awe of Moira and her ability to edit this series. I mean, she... You were the editor. You did the, the editing. editing. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Moira would, would help contain my ideas in a way. To, I mean, she would, you know, she would support them and encourage them. But at the same time, I mean, she just served in this incredible capacity as an editor because... You know, I wasn't the type of director who would say, "Okay, here's what I want to do and and leave for two weeks. You know, I was in the edit room every day with Moira. um, But often I I would step away and, you know, do research or um, contact our subjects or do other things, act as a creative producer or, you know, think about more big picture stuff. But Moira was really down in the weeds with the material and did a fantastic job.
1: Now, last thing is, so I could be silly about this and say, "Well, I'm assuming your next movie is about figure skating or something really kind of very chiffonny and sweet." What's your? Are you got something going on? What are you doing? You don't want to talk about
3: it. Well, right. I mean, you don't want. Perhaps to we don't want to talk about it. But, you know, right. Maybe that's also just a nice thing to say at this point because you know this series launched less than three weeks ago at this point, and I think we finished it less than four weeks ago. So, and, you know, here we are doing press, and we hosted family during the holidays, and so, you know, we can't wait for the moment to, you know, refill the well, as they say. It's also, we made this series to start a dialogue, and it's important to us to be part of that dialogue. So, you know, we'll be doing this for a little while, and, you know, following this case if, if things develop, but we do hope to to find another another story that needs to be told.
1: And when Laura Ricciardi and Moira Dimas find it, we and many of their fans will be there to watch and listen. This is Alec Baldwin and you're listening to Here's the Thing.